we sang that last song, something occurred to me. That, that song just arrests me every time we sing it. It's just such a beautiful vision of what we'll see in heaven. But when the instrument stopped and we all sang, and it was so loud and beautiful, and then right after that, it, slow, it just went really quiet again. I was thinking in the book of Revelation, there's a point where uh, John says that the angels never cease shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Never cease shouting that. And then there's another place where it says, and there was silence in heaven for about an hour. How do you get angels shouting, holy, 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 and silence at the same time? And, and I think that song kind of, it brought that out of me, is there is this monumental moment when we're standing before the glory of God where shouting is the appropriate response. And then as the glory of that sinks in, silence is the right response. So that just was such a beautiful picture of what our, our place in heaven will be like. It will be never cease to shout holy and to have silence for an hour at the same time in the same moment. And you can only get away with that in heaven. We can't do that here. I would love for this, the music team to come up with a way to have silence and shouting at the same time and have it work. But I don't think that's going to happen. So when we get to heaven, folks, that's when we'll get to see those things. Um, Sorry, these things hit me and they just come out of my mouth. Uh, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to go to the back, um, your teacher will meet you. Uh, just a place for kids to learn in a more age-appropriate setting. And uh, as they go, let me open us in, in a brief word of prayer. Lord, that vision of what will happen in heaven as we are no longer encumbered by sin, our selfishness is melted away. Our self-centered hearts are turned outward to look toward you. We are freed from those things that bind us now to love as we were meant to love, to, to worship as we were meant to worship, and to find the fullness, the depth, the breadth, the, the width of joy that we were intended to have. Uh, Lord, what a glorious vision that is. And, and Lord, my heart seeks for that. I look forward to that day when we stand before your throne in worship. Thank you for giving us these little glimpses that we get now. Um, and I pray that that taste would, would whet our appetite for more, more of you. Uh, Lord, thank you for that. And uh, I thank you for public worship that we can gather together as, as your people and worship together, encourage each other, share our gifts and just our stories of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, to that end, I want to pray for our, uh, some of our saints who are sick. We pray for uh, Jeannie Dinsmore. I thank you for the recovery that she's made. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to heal her and strengthen her. Lord, would you help her to recover from her surgery? And um, Lord, I thank you that through all of this, she's been uh, just giving credit to you and, and the miracles of everything that you worked in her case. And Lord, we also pray for Ron Lafoon uh, this morning, um, having seen him this week. And, and Lord, when I mentioned your goodness and his his speed of recovery he just lifted his head or his hand to the, the ceiling um, and lord i thank you that ron even though he's not speaking particularly well now is still giving you praise and, and uh, glory uh, even in, in his difficulty even in his weakness and lord we pray for ron's uh, continued recovery lord would you give him stories to tell um, things to tell people that can only be accounted by the fact that a God loves him and cares for him, that the, the creator of the universe is watching over him. And Lord, we pray for Rachel, for strength, for her, uh, for um, 
especially what's coming after Ron gets out of uh, assisted living, uh, caring for her husband as he continues to heal and, and, and uh, become stronger. Lord, I pray that you would give Rachel the faith, the trust in you that she needs in, in a church family that will surround her and support her and step in where we are needed and where we're welcomed. And so, Lord, bring them healing and strength, we pray. Uh, Father, I also want to pray again for Revive AV. Um, I pray for Pastor Jeff this morning. Uh, his message this morning is very important for his church. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with them in spirit and in truth as they worship. But also, Lord, as you promised, where two or three are gathered in your name, Lord, I pray and I trust that you are right there with them, Jesus. And so uh, lead them to, to, um, to follow after you in all the good ways and all the difficult ways as well. And Lord, I pray the same thing for us. Lord, as we, as we open the book of Acts this morning, would you be with us and lead us through this? Show, it, show us what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And uh, Lord, may we open our hearts and our minds to the truth that you laid before us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name for his glory and for his church. Amen. Amen. So uh, you may have noticed we're starting a new book now. We're starting into the book of Acts. And uh, I was asked this morning, so you're ready to bring the thunder, you know, ready to bring the, the story. And I was like, not really, <laughs> because where it really gets going, where, where things really break out is chapter two, when the Holy Spirit arrives and the disciples charge into the streets and they're proclaiming Jesus. And that's where it really gets rolling. Um, in typical Luke fashion, there's this chapter one, which is kind of a prologue where he's setting things up. And so this morning, um, it's, it's not like it's less inspired or not good, but um, I'm chomping at the bit to get to chapter two, if you, if you know what I mean. <laughs> That's where I want to really land. Um, so this morning, we just need to kind of set up the book of Acts a little bit, understand what it is, where it is, and then uh, take a look at this introductory section, this, this first half of chapter one. Um, so the book of Acts has uh, historically been attributed to Luke, um, and the clue to that is, he says in my first book, O Theophilus. Well, his first book was the Gospel of Luke, where he introduced it and kind of dedicated it to Theophilus then. So it's the same author. The, the tradition has always been that it's Luke who's wrote it, who, who, who wrote it. And um, the historic title, The Acts of the Apostles, that's on many ancient documents, many ancient copies that we have. Sometimes it says Acts of the Apostles at the end of the letter, not at the beginning of it. Um, but that's been the, the uh, traditional title, although some of the, uh, the, the commentators and theologians look at it and say, really, this should be the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of Jesus. And I think as we get going, you'll see, yeah, that might make sense. But the acts of the apostles is actually kind of important, too. So we'll look at that in a little bit. Um, when was the, uh, the book of Acts written? Um, and this is an important question, because if this is volume two of the Gospel of Luke, then the Gospel of Luke had to be written before the book of Acts. And if that's true, then we can kind of see how early these things were written. Um, there's a handful of proofs that people will offer. There's a whole bunch of things that historically happened that weren't mentioned in the book. And so they, they tend to look at that and say, that proves that it, it, you know, this was written before that. For example, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. There's no mention of it in the, in the book of Acts. So... Some people theorize it must have been written before 70 AD. Um, I think that, you know, that makes sense and there's some weight to that, but it's kind of arguing from holes uh, because there's probably things that did happen during the time this was written that aren't mentioned. 
So I wouldn't rely on that too much as far as a proof for the date. I think the best and most conclusive proof for the date of the book of Acts comes because of the sudden ending. The way it ends is Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and he's meeting with people who come, and he's sharing the gospel, and then it's done. It just ends. There's no wrapping up of the story. So it feels very much like Luke is sitting there writing while he's in prison with, uh, with Paul, and he you know, finishes it and says, okay, well, I guess that's done. Okay, here, here it is. Um, and if that's true, if that's why it ends so abruptly, then that tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells us Paul was still alive when the book of Acts was written. If I, my theory is right at the end, if Paul is still alive, then the book of Acts had to be written sometime in the probably early to mid-60s because Paul was executed, there's variety because ancient texts disagree, somewhere between 63, 64, and 68 AD. So if Paul was still alive when Acts was written, then we've got to push this back a little ways into the, like 60 AD or so. And that's probably about when it was written, sometime around then. Um, if that's true, then the Gospel of Luke had to be written earlier than that because it's volume one. So if that's true, then let's say the Gospel of Luke was written around 58, 57, 58 AD. That's within 30 years of the events that are recorded in it. That, that speaks a lot about the authenticity of that book. And if the author of the Gospel is reliable, then the author of Acts is reliable. And this is some pretty good history. So that's the theory. Um, the other thing is how the book is written. It is not written as what's called a hagiography. That's your $8 seminary word. What hagiography means is the story of a saint. And so sometimes a hagiography is just this elevated prose and, you know, this person floated and they glowed in the dark and they did these wonderful things and, and goodness just flowed out of them and they never said a harsh word to anybody. And that's kind of how we use the word hagiography now. Um, that's not how the book of Acts is written. It's very down-to-earth, very rooted in history. And if you compare the book of Acts to other histories that were written, they're very similar style. So, for example, the, Josephus was a Jew who defected to the Romans, and he wrote a Jewish history for the Romans so they could understand the Jewish people. Um, he wrote that pretty late, probably 68 to 70, somewhere in that time frame. Um, it's a similar style to what Luke writes very much as a history, although sometimes Josephus got a little bit overboard in it. So the book of Acts is presented to us as a history of the church, as a history of what happened, not as some elevated prose, not as some, some fantastical vision or anything. It's very much rooted in, in the contemporary. So that's what the book of Acts is, is, is Luke, again, just like with Gospel of Luke, telling us the history of what happened. Um, so why was it written? Why did Luke write this book? Now, if you remember from the Gospel of Luke, I said the reason that Luke wrote the Gospel is right there at the beginning. O Theophilus, I want you to be sure of the things you've been taught. And what I said was, disciples are learners. Disciples are under the tutor of a master. A master leads disciples, therefore they're learners. So he writes to Theophilus and he says, I want you to be a good disciple. I want you to be a good learner. So I'm writing to you to firm up what you believe. And then when we went through the gospel, what we saw was Jesus teaching people how to be disciples. He was doing things and, and explaining things to make people better disciples. So volume two is probably going to follow in that same path. I, I think what the, the, God, the, the book of Acts is all about is 
these disciples who Jesus made disciples are now out making disciples. So it's Jesus' disciples making disciples is what the book of Acts is about. And what does that look like and what does that mean? Um, so we'll, we'll go through that as we're going. One last introductory point. Um, there's a question about how to interpret the book of Acts. And the, the two words that are used are, is it, is it descriptive? Does it just describe what happened? Or is it prescriptive? Does it tell us how we should be doing church? And so there's people that fall out on both sides of this. Some people say, well, it's just describing what happened in the church. It's just a history. And so um, we, we don't have to take too much of that as telling us how we should do things. We looked at the epistles for that. And then there's people who look at it and say, well, it described what happened. So why aren't we doing that? Um, one of the, the, the examples that I think of is a man named John Wimber uh, came to believe in Jesus Christ through the work of uh, um, Calvary Chapel. And when he read the book of Acts, he said, why aren't we doing that? It, these things are happening here. How come it's not happening with us? And he's the founder of what's, been, uh, uh, what's become the Vineyard Movement. And so the Vineyard Church, I don't, I'm not sure what the ones here is like now, but back in the day when they were at the fairground, when the fairground was a couple of blocks away, they were fairly charismatic and they, they were looking for these kind of signs and wonders because they were following what Wimber said, which is, this is descriptive. This is how church should be. Um, I'm not faulting him. I'm not saying you know, that that's horrible or anything. I'm just kind of describing the, the two approaches. So you know me. What's my approach? Both and. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm too chicken to come down on one side or the other. <laughs> I think what happens is as we're reading through the book of Acts, we have to look and ask questions and instead of saying yes, it's descriptive or no, it's uh, or yes, it's prescriptive or no, it's descriptive, we should be saying, well, what's going on here and how does that fit in? So the way I approach it is to look at what it says. This is a recording, an accurate recording of what the church did. Now, is this a principle that the church today should be living by? Well, you get that by looking at the rest of the New Testament. Did this kind of thing continue on? So, for example, in a, in a few chapters, we're going to hear about how they lived communally. People sold their property, gave money to the church, and shared everything and lived together. So does that mean that, folks, we need to sell all your houses, put all the money in the bank, and move in here, and we're going to live in here together? I like you all. I think I'll keep my house. It's not descriptive. It's not saying that's what you must do. It's simply saying that's what happened. And the reason I say that is because, well, you look through the rest of the New Testament, you don't see Paul explaining to the church at Galatia, sell everything and move in together. But that principle is still important because what you do see Paul do is you see Paul write to the church at Corinth and say, hey, guys, I'm going to come by in a couple of months. I want you to gather up some money, set it aside for the church in Jerusalem, and I'm going to come by and pick it up, and then I'm going to take it to Jerusalem because the saints there are in need. So there still is that communal aspect. It's just not quite as strong. So do you get where I'm going with that? So that's how we're going to approach this, is asking those kind of questions. Is, is what we're seeing supposed to be what we're doing? Or is it simply what the church did at that time? So that's, that's the introductory stuff, uh, the boring nuts and bolts kind of thing. Um, so now let's take a look at the text. What's going on in this text is the first part we get kind of a recap of the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke picks up what he had said there and kind of unpacks it a little bit for us. Then the next section is the, the big part of it, the ascension. Jesus ascends into heaven. And then the last part of it is the disciples obey. They go and they do what they're supposed to do. So let's take a look first at this, this overlap with the Gospel of Luke. 
It's that first part that Paul read. Um, it starts within that first book, O Theophilus. Um, in the first volume, in the beginning words that I wrote, Theophilus, he says, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Don't miss that word began, because I think it's important. It's not accidental. In the first volume, he dealt with everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus started his work in the gospel. He didn't finish it there. He's not done. Jesus is still continuing to do and to teach. He's continuing to work with his people, but he's doing it in a very different way. In the gospel, Jesus is physically present, and he is physically walking around, and people are drawn to him physically because he's there. What we're going to see this morning is Jesus physically goes into heaven, but he's continuing to do and to teach in, in the world. And the, the, the way he does it is through the Holy Spirit in his church. So he continues his work through his Holy Spirit in his church. So that big word began is really important there. Um, he, I, I told you everything that he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he gave commands through the Holy Spirit, see I told you, Holy Spirit's there, uh, to the apostles, see I told you the church is there, whom he had chosen. Um, so it sounds like this is what Jesus had written before, right? I, he gave commands to the people he had chosen before, and he wrote about them. Well, he didn't. If you go back and look at the end of Acts or Luke, um, uh, the Gospel of Luke, he says, starting in verse 50, this is how he ended it there. He said, He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. When he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continuing daily, or continuing in the temple, blessing God. Did he command them anything? He blessed them, and then he disappeared. So what he's doing is, is Luke is, is weaving together the end of his gospel and the beginning of this because what he's about to do is tell us what he commanded them. Um, so that's, that's kind of where he's going with it, is it's not a real clear distinction. For him, the, the thought is just continuing. The next thing he says is, is he's kind of recapping what happened at the end of his gospel. He says, he presented himself alive to them after he is suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus dies. The apostles are, are terrified because their master's been killed. And then on Sunday morning, word comes, he's risen. And at that point, everybody believed and they all said, Jesus is risen and it's great, and let's go. Well, we know that's not true because Thomas said, I'm not gonna believe it unless I put my hand in his side. We know that's not true because when Mary came and said, I've seen the Lord, he's risen, the apostles looked and went, nuh-uh. They didn't believe it. So look at what it says here. It says, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. To his disciples, Jesus appeared by many proofs. So one of the questions people sometimes ask is, well, if the resurrection really happened, why didn't he appear to Pontius Pilate? Why didn't he appear to the Pharisees? Why didn't he appear to the chief priests? Why didn't he stand in the middle of the temple so everybody could see him? And, and that sounds kind of damning. It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Why wouldn't he do that? that? He should have appeared today so he could be on CNN and everybody around the world would see him. Um, wouldn't that be better? Then everybody would know. Take a look at what, what uh, Luke is warning us about here. The people who most wanted to see him alive, the people who desired the greatest to see Jesus alive, when he appeared to them, they didn't believe it. They, they had to have proofs. 
And so here's again from the, the end of Luke's gospel. This is how Luke explains it. He says, as they were talking about these things, um, the stories of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So he appears to his apostles, his disciples, and they don't believe it. They think, oh, it's, a, it's an apparition, it's a spirit. He's like, no, look, it's really me. So if the people who most at that moment desired to see Jesus alive don't believe it, what do you think the Pharisees would have thought? The Pharisees would have looked at the resurrected Jesus and probably thought either A, that's not him, or B, we got to kill him again because we didn't do it right the first time. That, that would have been their options. So why didn't Jesus appear to all of these people? Why didn't he you know, show up in the middle of the temple? Because even those who desired to see him didn't, couldn't believe it. It was too fantastic. It, it's too wild to have a person rise from the dead. Um, so that's one of the, the arguments against Christianity that people offer is that Jesus only appeared to those who believed in him. And the explanation is, well, Jesus didn't physically rise. What happened was these disciples were so torn up, so distressed over the fact that their Messiah, their, their, their leader, their master had died, that they began to have dreams. And, and they dreamt that Jesus came to them. And they were so excited by this positive dream that they began to confuse that with reality, and they thought they had seen him. And so after one or two people said they, they saw him physically alive, then the word got out that he was physically alive. I don't buy that for a second. Luke right here just disproved it. Because he said he appeared to them, and had to offer him a bunch of proof. It doesn't sound like people who were so deluded that they decided they wanted to see Jesus alive. He was alive. He appeared to them, and he had to convince them, no, really, it's me, you guys. Um, that speaks volumes for the authenticity of the resurrection. And no matter if you believe in the resurrection or you don't believe in the resurrection, the resurrection is a problem. Because it is a historical event that something happened. And you have to decide what the best explanation is. Is it the delusion theory, or did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because the idea that the apostles made it up and lied, that's been, that's been shot down so many times, it's not even funny anymore. It's not worth approaching. Now, the reason I'm stressing the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, is because as we go through the rest of the book of Acts, that's going to be the primary apologetic that the apostles use for their message. That is going to be the linchpin of every discussion they have, is they're going to say, Jesus whom you killed is raised again. So for the book of Acts, the resurrection is central to the message of the gospel. Jesus overcame death. And so that's why I think it's just incredible that Luke right at the beginning says, even we didn't believe it. Even we had problems. He had to continue over 40 days to convince us over and over again. So that's, that's his kind of summary of the end of Luke, uh, Luke's gospel. And then he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So this is kind of how he's wrapping it up because the next thing he's going to do is Jesus is going to send. Um, if you were paying attention, and you were, um, you'll notice that Paul said uh, when he was eating with them, and I just said when he was staying with them, uh, the problem is this, this word that's translated there can go either way. It has to do, at its root, and never do, never do root word studies because what would you come up with with butterfly? It would be the most bizarre thing. However, uh, this one kind of works. At its root, what it means is eating salt together. And so in, in the, um, the ancient literature, it had this idea of eating a bushel of salt together. And that did not mean sitting down with a bushel of salt and a spoon and going at it. You wouldn't survive. What it had the idea was these two have been friends together so long that they've used up in their meals together a bushel of salt. That was the idea. So it has this, this, this word has behind it this idea of coming together and being with each other. And it also has a, a, a touch of eating in it. Um, so I personally like the way the NIV does that better because of what we just said about the resurrection. Remember what Jesus told them? Look, I'm not a spirit. Spirits don't have, have uh, flesh and bones like I have. Do you have anything to eat? And he sat in front of them and he ate a fish. He's like, see, spirits don't eat. So that's why I think the next thing he says is while he was eating with them, I think is a better translation, Although staying with them makes perfect sense as well because the other feeling behind that word is, is this drawing together and being together. Um, you can't eat with your friend if you're in two different cities. You, you've got to be together. So it has both of those feelings to it. But I think that the uh, better translation is eating with them because it is arguing again for the, the reality of the resurrection. So he orders them not to depart from Jerusalem. Do you remember before the, the crucifixion, he had ordered them to go to Galilee? When, when Mary found him at the uh, tomb, he said, tell them to go to Galilee and I'll meet him there. And now he tells them, after 40 days of being with them, he says, okay, now don't depart from Jerusalem. I want you to stay right there and stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard me say. So he's telling them that the Father, God the Father has promised to them something and that something is coming. This promise has been made to them, and, and they will receive it um, not many days from now. And, and what we'll see as we go through this is the promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you remember the other thing that I said a promise was? When God makes a covenant, it's a promise. So what he's telling them is, I have made this covenant, and this covenant from the Father is about to come on you. The Holy Spirit is the sign and seal of the new covenant. That's how you wind up in the new covenant, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, the, the Spirit is going to come in a few days from now. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a phrase these days that's just loaded with meaning, and it depends on where your background is, where you're coming from. Um, some people, I was asked one time by a gentleman, do you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And my first response was, well, no. Wait, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Because of course I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I didn't know if he meant, do you expect new believers to speak in tongues and, and do that kind of stuff? And I was like, well, no, that's not normative. That's not normal. It, great, when it happens, we'll take it. Um, but So I had to stop and say, well, what do you mean by that phrase? So this baptism of the Holy Spirit here seems pretty straightforward. Um, the Holy Spirit's going to descend on you in a few days, and you'll have the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's loaded. So if anybody ever asks you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, ask them back what they mean. Um, it's, a, it's a loaded phrase. So that's the promise. That's the situation. 
This is the overlap from the previous gospel, and now where we leave the apostles are they're sitting in Jerusalem waiting. No, they're not. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> what we've got to do next is we've got to get uh, Jesus into heaven. And so the next section, it says, uh, so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. One of the mistakes we make when we look at the early church is we think they were perfect. And if we could just get back to that, they had it all together. They knew everything. They had it all worked out. If we could just get back to that, that would be wonderful. This shows you that they still had messed up eschatology. They still didn't understand the end times yet. Because if you remember from the, end, from the Gospel of Luke, they kept looking at Jesus and going, he's going to be the king. He's going to be sitting on the throne, and uh, we'd like to sit on your left hand and your right hand when we get to Jerusalem, you know, set us up with the thrones. And Jesus looks these guys in the face and says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the ground three days, and then I'll rise again. And they go, yeah, but when you get to the throne, then Jesus does that, and they still aren't getting it. And so now you look at this, and they go, okay, well, we've gone through that. We didn't understand that before, but now is now the time when you're going to do this? Now you're going to take over? Now we're going to, we're going to reign, and we're going to have you know, the military, and we're going to be like uh, David's kingdom or Solomon's kingdom? They still don't get it. It's going to take a while for the church to work through the implications, pardon me, of what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection mean. So at this point, they're still looking for a Davidic king to sit on a throne. And Jesus' response to them is, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. What a nebulous answer. Does he tell them, no, it's, you've got to wait 2,533 years, and then we'll do that? He doesn't tell them that. Does he say, no, these, these things have to happen first? Nope, doesn't tell them that. Does he say, oh, you fools, don't you understand? That's happening now. We're reigning now. None of that. What he does is he looks at him and he says, it's not for you to know when. I've got something else for you to do. The Father has established this time that I'm going to come and I'm going to reign. And between now and then, I've got work for you guys. So don't worry about that. Get busy. And that's the thing that he says next to them. Is he tells them, but when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the Holy Spirit, that covenant promise of God, is going to come upon them, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he brings power. So this is what I want you to do in the meantime between my ascension and my return to rule this earth. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So his answer to them about their eschatological question of when are you going to reign is don't worry about it. Get busy. You've got work to do. Now, if you've uh, been an evangelical for a while, you've probably heard this before, and they talk about uh, the concentric the, the rings of what Jesus told them. Jerusalem is their city. Judea is their nation. Samaria is this foreign nation. And the ends of the earth is everything else. And so what the, the principle that sometimes is preached on this is, well, who's your Jerusalem? Jerusalem are, are people who are near and familiar. And then who's your Judea? Those are people who aren't near, but they are familiar. Who's your Samaria? Those are people who aren't familiar. And then the ends of the earth are the, who, those who are far off. And so they take that principle and they say, this is what's going on here is, is 
your, your Jerusalem is your family and your friends, people who are very close to you, who think like you, who talk like you, who are very familiar with you. You are to be his witness in your family, in your work, in those kind of areas. That's your Jerusalem. And then when you get done in your, your home, then you can go to your Judea, which is like the Antelope Valley. And, and that would be your Judea. There are people who are similar to you, but not close. They're a little further away. And then Samaria would be people who are very unlike you. So maybe other religions or something. And then the ends of the earth is we need to support global missions. And I'll tell you what, that's not bad. That, that, that's actually got some wisdom to it. And as a principle, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's not a bad way to categorize how we can reach people. Um, is, is from familiar and near to far off and unfamiliar. There's a, a progress to it. I don't think that's Luke's point when he wrote it, though. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. I think there's, there's some principle behind it, but I don't think that was Luke's point in writing it. I think what Luke just did in the words of Jesus, has gave us the outline for the book of Acts. Because what we're going to see happen is they're going to be in Jerusalem. That'll be the primary focus of the church. Because, like I said, they didn't have it figured out yet. They thought the kingdom was still a Jewish kingdom. And so they're in, the, in Jerusalem and working primarily in Jerusalem until chapter 8, when a persecution breaks out. And then it says, and then they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So until chapter 8, their focus is on primarily on uh, Jerusalem. After chapter 8, they begin to move out, and they go into other parts of Judea. They go into Samaria. And then starting in chapter 13, when we're introduced to Luke, uh, Paul's mission, then we go to the ends of the earth. So I think that's probably more what Luke had in mind was, here's my outline. Here's how, this, here's how the story of the church goes. Now, if that's how the story of the church goes, then our application for ourselves is probably not too far off. And we can think in those categories. One of the problems with that analogy, though, of your Jerusalem, your Samaria, is you can think in concentric rings and think, I have to evangelize my Jerusalem first before I get to my Judea. And that's just not the case. This is just describing your mission field, and, and it's everywhere. It's all over the place. You will be my witnesses. So that's, that's where he's going with this. That's going to be the, the pattern, the path of the book of, uh, of uh, Acts. One last thing, though. When they, when they ask him about, uh, will you restore the kingdom to Israel now? What they're doing is they're doing something that, that we struggle with as well. And that's the, the graphic that I put up there, that picture, Zion or Antioch. Zion is the holy hill. It is, it is the glorious temple. It is the glory that we sang about in that, that song that just really touched me this morning. And that's our desire. That's where we want to be, is we want sin to be put down. We want our, our flesh to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's that leaning towards Zion, that, that holy hill, that, that beautiful thing that we're aiming for. But you see the, the arrows point in the other direction, pointing to Antioch. And in chapter 13, that's, that takes place in Antioch, where Paul is commissioned. Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the Holy Spirit and told, don't head to Jerusalem, head out to the ends of the earth. And so I think that that was such a beautiful picture of our struggle, our desire, is we do desire the glory. We do desire all that we have in the promise that's coming. But in the meantime, we've been given a mission, and we have to go to Antioch. 
So it just so happened that I snapped the picture at the right time. You can see the, the right turn arrow is green. <laughs> In other words, yeah, go to Antioch. Um, I took that picture. It was near my house. I own a home in Antioch. And we moved there because we joined a church plant so that we could go carry the mission out. So um, I've been waiting years to use this picture. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can retire now. I've used that picture. Um, but that, that's kind of the, the picture that's going on is, is we constantly have that promise of Zion. But we've been sent to Antioch so that we can be sent out to the ends of the earth. So that was that, was that, that por- portion. And now we get to the ascension. So when they came together and they asked him those questions, and after he gives them their commission, he said to them, um, while he said these things, this is verse 9, uh, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood there in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who's been taking up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So as Jesus gives them a commission, you are to take my message to the ends of the earth. As soon as he finishes that, he's lifted up into the sky and disappears into the cloud. Um, And he's gone. They won't see him again. He's, He's disappeared. As a matter of fact, That's Jesus' last appearance in the book of Acts. He will show up a couple other times, briefly. Um, When when he calls Saul to be his disciple, he'll show up. When Stephen is being executed, he'll show up. But other than that, his primary presence in the book of Acts is through his church. So here's the question. Why does he disappear into a cloud? What was up with that? Some people who are critical look at that and say, well, this is this mistaken pre-scientific understanding of the universe where the sky was a big dome that sat on top of the earth, which sat on pillars. And every once in a while, God would open a door through the dome and and throw some thunderbolts or some hail or reach down and pluck somebody up and pull them through. And it's clearly pre-scientific, you know, ancient mistaken ideas. And that's why Jesus went up into the cloud. I don't believe that for a second. When you read the Old Testament, If you look, you'll find out that that idea of the dome and the the pillars and everything is used poetically. It's used to to illustrate this idea, this concept of the cosmos, but it wasn't used as, well, this is reality. They didn't approach it that way. And by the way, you're guilty of that as well. When you check the weather report, who do you look to? A meteorologist. Why on earth do they call a weatherman a meteorologist? What does meteors have to do with weather? Well, in the medieval times, they thought meteors punched holes and brought different cloud formations and moved stuff around. So to study the weather was to study the meteors. And we still use that term. In in 10,000 years, if a historian looks back and picks up a newspaper and sees the meteorological forecast, are they going to go, oh, they believe meteors did that? No, we don't believe that. That's, that's silly. So to look at the ancient people and think that they thought there was a, a dome over top of the flat earth and it sat on pillars and stuff, I don't think they'd thought that way. There's just too many other places where they don't speak in those kind of terms. So then why did Jesus go up into the clouds and disappear? Why didn't he just beam out right there? He's gone. Why did he go up? Well, we get the answer. It's right there if you just think about it for a second. What's the very next thing that happens? Two men in white robes show up. Who do you think those were? Those are angels, man. <laughs> he doesn't call them angels, but two, two dudes in white robes interpreting what just happened, that can only be angels standing there talking to him. And what do the angels say? Why are you looking up in the sky? 
Don't be so goofy. The Jesus who just was taken away from you, he's going to come just like you saw. So why did Jesus get sucked up into clouds and then, and then disappear? Because that's how he's going to return. He was showing, I'm going to re- when I return, it's going to be just like how I left. So Luke 17, he tells his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So when Jesus returns, it will be like lightning flashing across the sky. So why did he, descend, why did he ascend up into a cloud and then disappear? Because that's how he's going to come. The clouds are going to light up. The sky is going to flash. That's when he returns, he'll do the, sim- the same thing. Revelation chapter 1, right at the very beginning, it says, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and his Father, to him be glory, dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and everyone, and those, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So when our Jesus returns, he's he's going to come back just like he left, in a very visible, a very bright, a flashing way. So if anybody ever comes to you and says, hey, Jesus returned in secret, you can look them right in the face and say, I categorically, 100% can tell you that is absolutely not true. Because if he returned, I'd know about it. And it's not just because I'm so special, it's because everybody will know about it. When Jesus returns, you won't miss it. There is no secret return of Jesus. He will return in the clouds. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians, is the way Paul explains it. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead, will rise, the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Jesus comes, it won't be in some secret hidden back room where nobody else knows about it but a few select people. It, he, his return will flash across the sky. It will sound with a boom of an archangel's voice, of a blare of a trumpet. And if you're sound asleep, you're not going to miss it. There won't be any missing this. He will light up the entire globe when he returns. And when he returns, he will return with clouds, with a host of angels. So that's why, at this point, they're, they're standing there looking up at the sky with their jaw open, going, wow, that was amazing. And the angels kind of said, well, when he comes back, it's going to be like that, but even more so. So that's why Jesus ascends into the clouds to descend instead of just disappearing in front of them. So now what has he done? He's given them this promise. You stay here in Jerusalem. He's given them a command until the promise of the Father comes. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. I promise I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I will pour the Holy Spirit upon you in a, in a glorious and a fantastic way. And then in his departing, his angels tell him, and by the way, he's coming back. He's going to return. And so the apostles then turn and start wandering back to Jerusalem. They've been on the Mount of Olives outside of Bethany at this point. Luke doesn't mention it, but that's what he said in in the end of his gospel. And so they've got some time to, to process everything that they've done because they've got a long walk back to Jerusalem. But this is all the things that they have now been given. They've been given the promise of the Holy Spirit. They've been given a commission, go to the ends of the earth. And they've been given the promise of his return. He is coming back. So what do they do? What is the the first thing the church does? They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. So 
A Sabbath day's journey means it's about seven days walk. When was the last time you walked for seven days? Yeah, that's a long walk. But they did it pretty regular, so they were, they were familiar with it. So they've got a Sabbath day's journey to, to process everything Jesus just told them. They go back to Jerusalem, and they entered into an upper room and stayed there. Because what disciples do is they obey their master. Jesus told them, don't leave Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what, what disciples do with their master is they do what he said. And that's exactly what they did. They march back into Jerusalem and they sit down and they wait because the promise of the Holy Spirit is coming to them. And then we get the list of everybody who's there and what the list is is the 11 apostles because Judas is gone. We'll find out about him next week. But it lists the 11 apostles, but it's not just the 11 hidden in a room together. There's more. It says, these were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So there's a, a group of people that are now here. It's not just the 11. It's a group of folks who are now waiting for this promised Holy Spirit that they've been given. And actually, this is going to set up what comes next week. So I might go back and reread this for next week as well, um, uh, just so that we're, we're prepared for what comes next. But that's the book of Acts. And this is the, the excitement that Luke has for us as we go through this, is we're going to watch what it means to be Jesus' witness with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the truth of the resurrection and the hope of his return. And this is how people upset the world. This is how people change the entire world in one cataclysmic event is because they're, they're spirit-empowered. They're, they're working through the power of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that, that you'll notice when you leave this, this afternoon, yeah, this afternoon, um, is on the wall out there, we've got the Great Commission printed. And, and it's Jesus' commands, and it, at the end of Matthew, that's what he tells his disciples is, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. And that's our commission. That's what we're told to do. So how do you make disciples? And what the book of Acts is going to show us is these are disciples making disciples. And how do you make disciples? First of all, you share the gospel. You take Jesus' method, message to the ends of the world. The second thing you have to do is you have to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be involved in this. The Holy Spirit has to come upon people for them to become disciples. So we've been given the promise that the Holy Spirit will be with us, and he will be the one empowering our mission. So the first thing you can do, you can go out and you can share the gospel with somebody. The second thing you have no control over, and that's great news, because God's the one in charge of that. He's the one who can bring the power of the Holy Spirit upon somebody. And the cool thing is, it doesn't matter how good or bad that person is. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit shows up. So you be faithful with the gospel. God will be faithful with the promise. And the, the linchpin of it all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus was still in the grave, he wouldn't have ascended into heaven. He would not have sent the Holy Spirit. But because he rose, because he ascended, now the Holy Spirit is with us. And really, that's going to be the theme. That's, I'm probably going to say this over and over again as we go through the book of Acts. That's what it's about. And it's exciting. It's just incredible stories, one after another, of how God works through his Holy Spirit and his church to bring his message to the world. So when I said what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts is he continues to do and teach, but he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. And guess what? That's us. 
We get, to, we get to continue the book of Acts. We get to be the outcrop of this. The book ends, but the story continues, and that's our story. I, th- I find it exciting. It's like, yeah, let, let's go, Holy Spirit. What are, what are you going to do next? But it may involve sitting in Jerusalem and waiting, too, until he starts moving. Or it might mean bursting out into the streets, shouting about Jesus. We just follow where the Holy Spirit leads. And that, that's where we're going to go. That's going to be our, our book of Acts. That's going to be our description of what it looks like when disciples make disciples. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, Holy Spirit, we just confess, even now, speaking air into air. This is batting at flies if you don't show up. And Lord, we know that you're with us because our Father promised that you would be with us. Our Father told us that he would send you upon us, that that would be the act of making disciples, Lord, is when you come upon other people and empower them to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, what tremendous news. What great tools you have given us. And no wonder the apostles, the disciples, upset the entire world. No wonder your church continues to spread despite opposition. No wonder your word has been in constant print since the printing press was invented and has been a bestseller constantly is because your Holy Spirit is at work throughout the world. Lord, I want to ask you especially, would you please be working here in the Antelope Valley? Would you send your spirit upon first your church that we might find unity in purpose, unity in mission, unity in the things that you've called us to do, that we can figure out how to work together where we can to bring the gospel to this valley. And then, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you descend on this valley and bring many, many people to you. Fill the churches of the Antelope Valley. Fill the gospel-preaching churches of the Antelope Valley, the Bible-believing churches of the Antelope Valley, the Christ-exalting churches of the Antelope Valley. Fill them to capacity, we pray. Lord, you did it before. We've got it written down. We pray that you would do it again. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name, who's our high priest, our king, our big brother, and our master. Amen.